0: Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh.
1: So this is the parable of the ten virgins. It is a parable, which means that there are types and analogies. For example, there are virgins. The virgins represent those who have no sin because their sin has been washed away, clean as white snow, okay? So there's no sin, therefore, that's what the virgins represent, a purity that the entire body of Christ gets by receiving atonement for sins. Okay, but among these who are saved, Some have oil in their lamp. In other words, they have, their lamps are shining. They are putting out light so that they can see, so that they can watch at night. They can see and watch. Others without oil aren't quite as concerned about being able to continue to watch. So then they all sleep. And then at midnight, a cry is heard. So notice that they all fall asleep. There is sleeping involved, and then there is a midnight cry awakening at midnight. So keep that in mind. We have awakened at midnight. But some might say that the virgins, none of them are the bride, because they're not the bride in the parable. But that, I don't think, adds up, because, again, it's a parable. It's not an actual account. Okay, so it's you can have... The guests of the wedding, some of them represent the bride because it's a parable. It's it's this representing that, etc. Another reason that I believe that this is indeed about the rapture is in Matthew 25, if you check, you'll see that the very next parable is the parable of the talents, which is the Bema judgment seat of Christ, where people are rewarded for things they've done or, or lose rewards, Okay. In that parable, you'll see that the rewards have to do with ruling over people or nations. It says, I'll make you ruler over many things, that type of thing. And that is the promise to overcomers in Revelation. Okay, the overcomers will rule and reign. So that definitely would tie into the chronology of first rapture. Then those who do go in the barley harvest rapture or first rapture or into the wedding supper, however that is split up, it would make sense that we would then have rewards. Okay, and then the third parable in Matthew 25 is what happens after the second coming. Okay, it's the judgment when he comes back. Now, another place in the Old Testament this time, where somebody is awakened at midnight, exactly at midnight again, is in Ruth three eight, And this is when Ruth was at Boaz's feet for the barley harvest. Now to understand the significance, it's very important to understand the typology going on. And I don't think anybody has ever explained this better than our old friend Chuck Missler. So I'm going to let Dr. Chuck Missler, explain this for us.
2: But uh, not, let's not leave it there. Let's have our dessert and get into the Book of Ruth, a little book, The Romance of Redemption. It opens up in the days where the judges rule. So this is not period. It's the ultimate love story that emerges, emerges out of this mess. At the literary level, it is widely venerated in colleges, just as an element of literature, apart from the biblical uh, implications. At the prophetic and personal level, it's an incredible gem. It has prophecy in it, and it also has personal implications for each of us. Strangely enough, even though it's in the Old Testament, and the church is not visible in the Old Testament, this is one of the most significant books of the Old Testament regarding the church, and I'll show you why. One of the things it includes as part of the story is the role of this strange thing that in Hebrew they call the goel, the kinsman redeemer. What is he? What does he do? What's that all about? And I'm going to suggest to you that this book is an essential prerequisite before you study Revelation chapter 5. You won't understand what's going on unless you really understand the book of Ruth. A little background. In the genealogies of the Bible, the tenth man is always significant. From Adam to Noah, we talked about that before. From Shem to Abraham is obviously significant. From Isaac to Boaz, he turns out to be the tenth uh, again. And so he turns out to be a very significant guy. He's going to be a type or a foreshadowing, in a sense, of Jesus Christ. And so the 10th man is always important. Now the book of Ruth, first chapter is about love's resolve, where Ruth cleaves to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Second chapter is love's response, where she then gleans on behalf of her mother-in-law because they're destitute there in Bethlehem. And then we have love's request. Out of this comes an opportunity, and there's this very misunderstood scene in the thrashing floor we'll, we'll get to. And then there's a climactic scene which has some surprises for everyone. In chapter four, the redemption of both the land and the bride, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Roof Cle- for chapter one. The famine. There's famine in Bethlehem, so Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and their two sons Mahlon and Kilian, go to Moab because things are better there. And in Moab, these two sons take up Moabite daughters uh, as wives. And uh, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow and her two sons also die." Rather weird names, unhealthy and puny, apparently is what the names mean. Um, Speaks for itself, I guess. Um, Naomi's name means pleasant, and I'm going to suggest it means pleasant land, because she's going to turn out to be, in a sense, a type of Israel. But she's in Moab. She's in exile, and she's destitute. But 10 years have gone by. She now hears things are better back at home in Bethlehem. So she's going to go back home. And her two daughters-in-law want to go with her. That tells you a lot about Naomi. The two daughters-in-law would want to stick it out with her. She talks him out of it. And one of them, uh, uh, Orpah, uh, ultimately does return to her own people. But Ruth refuses. She's obstinate. And she decides to stay with her mother-in-law, and her testimony is worth quoting. Ruth said to, me, uh, to Naomi, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also. If aught but death part thee and me. What a statement. And Naomi realizes she's resolute, so she yields, and, and she goes back. So they go back to Bethlehem. You have to learn, uh, one of the reasons the books of value, you have to learn some laws. One of those is, is the law of gleaning. The rules were that if you had a piece of land, your reapers could go through once and only once. What they missed was, left, was for the widows and orphans and destitute. That was called the law of gleaning. You'd go through once, but you weren't allowed to go back and skim it. That, that was what you inherently would miss belonged to the destitute. That's in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, several places. So. Naomi and uh, Ruth are destitute. They're back in the land, but uh, trying to make it, and so Ruth, being uh, younger, goes to glean, and uh, so they and she happens upon the field of Boaz. I love that word happens. Uh, you know what the rabbis say? They say coincidence is not a kosher word. Or the way we see it, there's no accidents in God's kingdom. It turns out she happens on the one field that's going to change the destiny of the world. Boaz, by the way, means in him is strength, and it's a very interesting name because one of the two pillars in the temple are named Boaz for some significant reasons. We'll get there later. He's introduced to Ruth by an unnamed servant. And I'm fascinated. We're going to discover, of course, Boaz is in the role of the Lord of the harvest. Ruth of course will end up becoming his Gentile bride. The unnamed servant is the one that introduces her to Boaz, and the Holy Spirit always is an unnamed servant. We went through that in Genesis, you may recall. Here it happens again. Jesus says, explains why. The Holy Spirit will never testify of Himself. And when Boaz finds out that Ruth is there, he instructs, he, he tells her, "If don't be in any other field, stay here. And I've, He instructs his young men not to touch her, and also to drop handfuls on purpose. <laughs> in other words, to make sure there's plenty they missed that she can glean for herself and her mother-in-law. And so you begin to see there's uh, something going on here. Boaz will be turn out to be the role of a Goel. That's a Hebrew term meaning the kinsman redeemer. And he has some interesting uh, you have to, to do to get into this, you have to understand the law of redemption. And uh, also the law of Leverite Mary. The two other laws you need. The law of redemption was that if a person had to sell his land, that is, lease it in effect because he was destitute. The next of kin could come and redeem the land for the family, if he chose to, but he had to be able, he had to be willing, and he had to be able to. Take, he had to take all the obligations of the the lost guy to do that. So, that's what the the it was a, it was a it was an option, an optional responsibility, so to speak, of uh, the law of redemption. The law of Leverite marriage is the one we talked about. That's where a guy, if a guy dies, his brother is supposed to take, if he can, take the woman to raise up seed for the the, the dead brother, and so. The, Leverite, the, the So, the, that's what the Leverite marriage was. Anyway, um, so in, in Chapter 2, by the way, when when uh, uh, Ruth comes home with all this stuff, Naomi smells a fish here. What's going on? And she, when she finds out that Naomi's been in Boaz's land, she re- Naomi realizes that Boaz is a kinsman, and she realizes here's an opportunity, not just for herself, but also for her daughter who's been so faithful. And so she says, do it exactly as I instruct you. And you get to chapter, this all sets the stage for chapter 3. The famous thrashing floor scene. So see, Naomi recognizes the opportunity for the redemption of her land that she wants, but also for a whole new life for Ruth. So she instructs Ruth on what to do. So in accordance with the instructions, Ruth approaches Boaz to fulfill the role of the Goel. And uh, what he does, what, what what happens, she tells her, see, th- th- the thrashing floor takes place on a saddleback where there's a wind all the time. And what you did at the end of the day, you took the grain that had been harvested and you threw it up into the wind, and the, the good stuff, the heavy stuff, would fall in a pile downwind a little bit, the, the light stuff, the stuff you don't want, would fall further downwind. If you did this right, you ended up with two piles. The one closer in, you'd bag for market, and the one further down, you'd burn to keep away vermin and so forth. But all this was done in the atmosphere of a carnival uh, a feast in the evening. So. Uh, when after the partying and the and, and all that, they um, would sleep. But the owner of the of the material would sleep by the, and and probably his key guys would sleep by the grains so it wouldn't be stolen. And so it was an overnight uh, slumber party kind of thing. What um, no one tells Ruth to do: watch where he sleeps, and when it's all quiet, you go and sleep at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. And so he does, In the middle of night, he wakes up and here's Ruth, and he shook, and. She she, when people read that, it sounds like she is propositioning him sexually. No, it's worse than that. She's asking him to do his kinsman's part. Uh, uh, Spread your skirt over me is the expression. You need to understand that culture. uh, Hems were where the badge of authority resided. We think of, of authority as stripes on a sleeve or on a shoulder. In ancient Israel, it was on the border of your garment. That's when David cuts the hem of Saul's garment. He's cutting his genealogy away. Uh, the hem, when the woman in uh, the issue of blood, if she can touch the hem of Christ, her mind is, that's where his authority is. See, the hem's where the authority When God speaks in Isaiah, God speaks of, of Israel, putting His skirt over Israel, putting His authority and protection over her. She asks Him to put His skirt over her. People misunderstand that without the background. What she's asking Him to do is marry her to raise up seed because He's a kinsman. And He says and He's flattered. He's flattered and she does it. But unfortunately, there is someone, clo- a closer kinsman that he has to clear the way for first. And so she, she, wants, she wants him to fulfill the role of a Goel. But there's a nearer kinsman in the way. And when you get through the story, see by now you've got this love story going and she wants to be married. And when he says there's a nearer kinsman, you know, that's, that's a cloud. That's your plot problem. What's going to happen here? We'll get to that. And what he, what he does do, he gives her six measures of, of meal barley, to take back to Naomi. You and I miss that, but Naomi, when she gets back, Naomi recognizes what that means. She says, that means he won't rest until this is resolved. See, the six days God worked and the seventh he rested, there's six, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a code, a code that Naomi picks up and understands when she gets home. So that leads to chapter 4, the big deal. Boaz confronts this guy that's the nearer kinsman. and Naomi has a property, uh, land, and he, and uh, looking for someone to redeem it. He says, I'll redeem it. See at this point, by the way, if you get in the real picture here, you've got a picture, you know, um, Boaz is sort of a Charlton Heston or a Harrison Ford kind of guy. The nearer kinsman is probably, what, Danny DeVita or something, see? (laughs) Um, And he said, I'm willing to do it. Boaz says, wait a minute, Uh, whoever takes that has to take all the obligation. You'd have to take Ruth as a bride. Well, he can't do that because it'll mar his own inheritance. So he passes, and he passes by giving uh, uh, the symbol of his passing is to give take a shoe and give it to to Boaz. And of course to him it's a disgrace, but to Boaz it's a marriage license, see? And so he that's, that's the big win, because Boaz now, the road is clear for him to take Ruth as a bride. And so the, the guy yields his shoe is to re- relieve the obligation, Boaz steps up. He purchases the land for Naomi, and he purchases, that's the word used, Ruth as a bride. A gentile bride. She's a Moabitess, right? You see, do you see the symbolism starting to unfold here? You haven't seen the half of it. Okay. At the big celebration where Ruth and, and uh, Bo- uh, Boaz are being married, somebody says, May your house be like Perez. Now, if you don't know your story, it sounds like a toast. Isn't that great? But if you've read Genesis 38, you know what a sordid thing the birth of Perez was. That's where Tamar gets Judah to on a, on a, uh, un, uh, not realizing it, have incest with her, to have a child. Remember that whole thing. And uh, uh, Perez is the illegitimate son of Tamar. Here they say, may your house be like Perez. You would, you, if that, someone said that to you, you say, same to you, fella, you know. No, it's actually a strange prophecy buried in Ruth here. Let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, the seed of which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. You need to know in Deuteronomy 23, it says, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter to the Lord. In other words, it takes generation, ten generations to purge the illegitimacy, if you will. Well, if you go through here and you see the Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Solomon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David, uh, you've got ten generations. In fact, you may recall that Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David were encrypted in Genesis 38 behind the text. We looked at that then. But we have here um, the 10th generation after Perez is David. So here we have a prophecy in the book of Ruth. This is in the time of Judges, of David being the king. Second time this comes up. It came up in Genesis 38, but it also comes up here. And uh, this is in the time of the Judges. Interesting little thing. Now, there's more to it. The Goel Kinsman Dream, of course, the kinsman had to be a a kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He has to be willing to perform. Those are two different things. And he has to assume all the obligations. And Jesus Christ is our kinsman. He became man and dwelled among us. He has to be able to perform. He could perform because He's sinless on our behalf. He had to be willing, and He was. He loved us that much. And He had to assume all of our obligations, which He did. So that's why this thing is fitting the model here. Boaz is the Lord of the harvest. He's the kinsman redeemer. What's Naomi? She's Israel. Because of His redemption, Israel's returned to the land, to her land. And Ruth, of course, is the Gentile bride. You wonder, how can Boaz, a good, self-respecting Israeli leader, take on a Gentile bride? You have to know who Boaz's mother was. His mother was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. So no wonder he had to see what the law could not do, grace can. Some other observations. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. Now, that's kind of interesting. Think that through. What the Law could not do, Grace did. It was illegal to marry a Moabite. But uh, our Kinsman Redeemer did. And Ruth does not replace Naomi. They have different destinies. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi, but Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. Think that one through. And no matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to wait for her move. Jesus is waiting for your move. Do you receive Him? Do you accept Him? So that He can be your kinsman Redeemer? It's interesting that Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. The law required the the, the estranged girl to confront the nearer kinsman. No, Boaz did it for her, and He does it for us. He makes intercession for us. It's interesting how much the model fits, and it's also interesting how much the model is twisted to fit the real reality we have. Some final remarks. The Book of Ruth turns out to always be read at the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot. How interesting. The Feast of Shavuot was the birth of the church and the Book of Ruth, in a sense, anticipates the church. And you can't really understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 5 where the Lamb takes the title deed of the earth and takes possession of that which He purchased, unless you understand these things in the Book of Ruth. You and I are beneficiaries of a love story that was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Book of Ruth profiles that for us. Okay, so at the barley harvest there
1: was a midnight awakening when Ruth, type of the bride of Christ, was at the feet of Boaz, type of our kinsman redeemer. And then in Matthew 25 we have the virgins who are awakened at midnight again were at midnight sleeping being awakened and then also we have this story from acts 16
0: and at midnight paul and silas prayed and sang praises unto god and the prisoners heard them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep...
1: Sorry for the abrupt cutting there, but you can read the rest of the story on your own. But we see, again, it's at midnight, someone being awakened from their sleep. All three stories show an awakening that occurs at midnight. Okay, it's not the second watch or the third watch which was usually the best guesses in those days when there weren't clocks. But to say something happened at midnight is, I think, peculiar and, and worth our attention. Also, should we find it interesting that that little story there in Acts 16 involves an earthquake and an escape? Remember Luke 21? Luke 21:11. there will be earthquakes in various places. And when you get to Luke 21:36, our Lord says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape, escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So interesting that it's an escape. He doesn't say to be accounted worthy to endure or to hide Escape. The word is escape. When a prisoner escapes from prison, that doesn't mean that they've learned to get by. It means that they're gone. They're out of there. Escape is the word in Luke 21:36. Okay. A lot of people, scoffers, don't like that that word is there. But I keep checking and it's always there. Now this screenshot is from TorahCalendar.com. It's a Hebrew calendar. Okay. So the Gregorian calendar dates, the ones that we use, are smaller. They're in smaller print. So you can see, for example, the first Sabbath is the fourth day of the seventh month. But that corresponds to evening, September 30th, into morning, and most of the day for October 1st. So October 1st mostly lines up with month seven, day four. And that's when this video is now being made there, during that Sabbath. So, if the ten virgins were falling asleep and then as the bridegroom tarried, that would suggest that there may have been a window of time when he was expected. But then he tarried, meaning that he was later than the time that he was expected. So, for example, if we had reason to expect him at Rosh Hashanah and he tarried until midnight. Could that mean that he is tarrying now until something else? Mid-month, perhaps? In the Hebrew calendar, the middle of the month is a full moon because every month begins and ends at the new moon. Now, the full moon, as you can see here, is on the, actually, Sunday night, Monday morning. It'll be early Monday morning in Jerusalem when the moon is full on the 13th day, the beginning of the 13th day of the seventh month. month. Now, when the moon is full, there is an instant in time when it is exactly full, where it peaks, it's Peak full moon time. If there was a lunar eclipse, it would be the middle of that lunar eclipse, in the middle of the full moon. But if there's not a lunar eclipse, there's still a peak time. And at that instant, the moon is exactly over a certain time zone or a certain longitude where it's exactly in the middle of the sky or as much in the middle of the southern sky as it can possibly be, uh, north if you're below the equator. So it turns out that this coming full moon on October 9th and 10th peaks when it is midnight, or actually five minutes to midnight if you go by the time zone, IDT, Israel Daylight Time. It's 2355, or 1155 p.m. is the time it peaks in Israel. So this coming full moon happens to be at its absolute middle peak time when it's directly above Israel. Conclusion, keep your oil lamps full. Keep them full of oil. Keep looking. Keep watching. He's coming. We know that he's coming. Keep knowing it. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming, our Lord, our kinsman redeemer. I hope this has blessed you. God bless you all. Love you all. Bye-bye.
0: And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. And he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there... And heard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man, and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake, and were choked."
1: There's a lot we can learn from this account. One thing, for instance, is that these demons, two thousand years ago, knew more than practically every one that lived then, and a lot of people that live today. The Jews, for instance, non-believers, for instance, don't realize that Jesus is the son of the most high God. These demons knew that. And if you read this same account from Matthew chapter eight, you'll see that they beseeched him to torment me not before the appointed time. In other words, they actually knew that there was coming an appointed time for their torment. It makes me wonder how curious the disciples were hearing this. I'm sure they were learning something. These demons now are getting print in the Bible that most of the disciples don't have. In other words, the demons are quoted, their words are in the Bible, but most disciples' words aren't in the Bible. What I'm saying is this is telling us that enemy intel Is valuable, and furthermore, that it's condoned. You're allowed to listen and glean from the enemy because that can be and sometimes is valuable. And the reason I say that is because there are some who would disapprove of looking at enemy intel, or at least the enemy intel that's not in the Bible, or maybe that's more modern. But didn't Jesus command us to pay attention to the signs of the times? He certainly is giving us the go-ahead to look at enemy intel when it's in his word. And we're supposed to watch the signs of the times. So that being said, we are going to proceed here and we are going to look at some enemy intel. And we are going to see what we can surmise from it. Good Bible scholars have believed that Psalm 2 is actually a conversation among the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, having a conversation with each other. So let's just listen to the first three verses of
0: that. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us.
1: All three of these verses are huge. The first verse, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? In other words, they got no chance. No chance. The kings of the earth set themselves, this is happening now, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against us, his anointed, saying, and then verse three is their words. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts from us. Hmm. Why are they saying it? Why are they announcing it? Why doesn't it say that they're planning it secretly or even whispering it? No, this is what they're saying. This is what they're proclaiming. This is what they are announcing. Why would they be announcing it? That would be stupid strategy, announcing attack before you attack. See, people tend to think sometimes that this picture here depicts what's going on, but it's not. Believe me, this this is not a battle of might. If it was a battle of might, it would be like, Obama going one-on-one against Michael Jordan. That would be a joke. I'd love to see it. And actually, it will come to that, and it will be even more severe than this mismatch here. And we'll be there. The Bible tells us that in Psalm 37. That when the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Okay, God has that in store for us. That's one of the rewards that we're all going to get, is getting to witness the defeat of the enemy. Now, this picture here is, well, it's not accurate, but it's a little closer to what's going on. It's not so much might as it is strategy, legal strategy. But again, the picture here implies that the enemy is formidable. He's not, he thinks he is, but he's not. And he is trying to outmaneuver legally okay and there are certain legalities that he's dealing with and it's not all clear and it's not all spelled out but there is evidence to suggest that he needs to disclose his plans before executing them he has to by law it's called disclosure he
0: has to show you everything otherwise it could be a mistrial he's not allowed any surprises
1: so could it be that Psalm 2 3 is what is being shown here, not Psalm 23. Psalm 23 would seem to be a better label on what this is. So before we get into that film, let's take a step back and look at this card game here. I've done videos in the past talking about this particular card game that came out in 1994 and 95 very important to understand 1994 and 1995 now in the description there's a link to my public google drive in that drive there's a subfolder card game you can download a lot of these cards and also there's a uh, five pdfs that explain a lot about this particular game and what it has revealed, etc. So, for example, here you can see 9/11. Again, this is 1994-95. Okay. So clearly, there is much evidence that they're showing their plans in in many many of these cards. Some of these have happened, and some of them have yet to happen, and some of them are happening. For example, this NATO card. This looks like what's going on right now, doesn't it? I mean, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I won't. But just a real quick couple of points about some of these cards. Look at this. Used insensitive pronoun. The the insensitive pronoun thing didn't come about to, what, three, four years ago? This is 1994-95. That's so far ahead of its time. Insensitive pronouns. And... Is that Alex Jones? I don't know. You be the judge. Looks like Alex Jones to me. And what about this? Is that Donald Trump? Hmm. Eh, Not exact. I don't know. And what about this one? The stars are right. Is this the Revelation 12 sign? Hmm. Interesting. And this one, probably one of the most famous, the rapture one. When the rapture comes, I'll make them wait. They'll never clean my cage. Now give me some of, tape runs out. And I've talked about what that could mean. I don't think anyone knows for sure. But if you take that picture there and you split it in half down the middle and then take the left half and then do a mirror image of it, it looks like this, like a spaceship coming to Earth when the earth is exploding. And of course there's some kind of demon face thing there looking like, interesting. Hmm. And then what is this full moon? Is it saying that something's gonna happen on a full moon? Will something go crazy during a full moon? Now we know that after the rapture, after we're gone, the enemy is going to have his deception all in place. He has it in place right now, actually. And he will be ready to immediately, because he knows his time is short, present his deceptive lies pertaining to the rapture. It'll be that the friendly UFOs came and removed the haters, something like that. And if the enemy Knows the day, he's certainly going to want to prove or show and deceive. Aha, look, I knew the exact day it was going to happen. I'm the one running the show here. Obviously, he's going to want to say that. So if he knows something, he might be revealing it, not for us, not for our benefit so much, but as part of the Psalm 2 3 disclosure, he could be showing what will be broadcast even more readily later. And that is to show the left behind that he was running things all along and you're all, everyone is under his control now and look, see he had it all planned all along. Now, of course we know who's really in charge. We know we win. We're on the winning side, but He's got his plans in place for his big show, his Wizard of Oz type deceptive show for the left behind and for people under his control after we're gone. For more than 30 years now, I have been listening to the teachings of Chuck Missler, Jack Van Empey, Hal Lindsey... Hilton Sutton, and many, many others, all who reinforced the teaching of the pre-trib rapture of all the body of Christ, all of the believers. If you say the prayer of salvation, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, if you're on board with that, you've received atonement for your sins, you will be saved. And I have always believed that, therefore, you would go in the one and only rapture, which is the pre-trib rapture. And I believed that for many, 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 many years. What is happening now, and it's not just me, it's others who are willing to abandon their loyalties, who are not concerned about what's most popular within their little circle, What's happening is we're realizing that that's not the case. The reason that there's been so much division between pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib, I don't know, rapture or what happens in, in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. The reason there's so much division is because people tend to believe what is in store for them. In other words, their hearts lead them in the direction that they're ultimately going. Hebrews 4.12, it is the word of God that discerns the the hearts and, and delineates between different groups of people. So the different beliefs are because there are different plans amongst the body of Christ. Like it or not, the good news is that if you know it in your heart that you're going in the pre-trib rapture, then you're going to go in the pre-trib rapture. That's why that desire is in your heart. Okay, so what's happening right now as we get close is the enemy knows now The enemy knows that there are going to be people who trusted in the nanosecond system where you say the prayer one time, forget about it, and you're going to go in the preacher of rapture. They're going to get left behind. A lot of lukewarm Christians are going to get left behind. But the enemy knows those lukewarm Christians, they're not going to be quick to admit it. They're not going to be quick to, to accept that. But what they will be quick to do is they'll be quick to accept that they're in the best club. That's why they're likely to be deceived by New Agers who are scoffing at a literal rapture and explaining that it's really just a figurative thing and it's about what's inside of you. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus describes all of the things that we are seeing right here, right now. And in verse 36, Jesus said, Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That is Jesus, and he is not on earth right now. The deceivers are saying things like that, that he's here now. Nope, he's not. He went up in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended, when he was raptured, and that's the way we were going to go in a similar manner. Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down, who indwells the body of believers. Jesus is in heaven. To stand before him that means up in heaven that's what this means okay so it tells us to watch and to pray always okay it doesn't say pray one time get saved which is step one in becoming saved this is different this is praying always praying that you are counted worthy how are you counted worthy by praying to be counted worthy it doesn't say to work to be actually worthy because none of us are worthy you can't be worthy You can be accounted worthy by praying always that you want to be accounted worthy because you actually believe. You have the faith to believe in a literal escape. It doesn't say endure. It doesn't say to be hidden under a rock. Okay, if a prisoner escapes from prison, that doesn't mean that he learned to cope. It means that he left. He's gone. That's what this means. It's literally true. Okay? It doesn't take as much faith to believe that your sins are forgiven as it does to believe that this is literally true. And that is a dividing line within the body of Christ right now. Some aren't going to believe this is literally true. Some won't believe it's literally true. I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice believes it and receives it. God bless. Love you all. Bye-bye.